during my university days, we would try different ways of reaching out to share the gospel on the campus where we lived and went to classes. And on one particular occasion, we brought in uh, an actor, a Christian actor, to perform in front of crowds in the open air out on the campus and to stir up conversations about God and the gospel. And this particular actor, in one of his skits or acts or performances, he would interact with the audience as if he were different depictions of God. Different ways that people commonly distort who God is. And so in one scene, he would pretend to be God who was a mean, wild, wild west sheriff. And so he'd don a hat and he'd stick a gun in his belt and he'd walk around talking to the crowd saying, I'm looking out for you all. I'm watching for when you make a mistake. And when you do the wrong thing. And then later he'd shift to another distortion of God. He would pretend to be a forgetful old man who was senile and was losing his memory and ability to discern anything around him and he would walk as if he could barely walk. He was like he was a God who had paid attention to the world a long time ago, but now he was old and couldn't do much of anything. And then he would depict a God who was like a celestial butler. You know, at your service, what do you need and when do you need it? I'll get it for you. That's why I exist. Another version of God was a loud and busy car repair boss who had a Boston accent, surprisingly. And he was busy shouting orders to angels about do this and move this and get this done. And he was really too busy to talk to you. He had too much work to be done in a short period of time. You may or may not hear what you actually need from him. This actor would de depict all these different ways that people commonly view God, and they were funny, they were entertaining, but when it was all over and the laughter died out, people would begin to ask themselves, what do I think God's like? How would I describe God? And of course, we would then start up good conversations with people in the crowd. And so I ask you, what do you think God is like? Who is God? If someone were to ask you that on your lunch break, what would you say in between bites? And does it really matter? Oh, I think it matters. It's of utmost importance. I think it's one of the most important questions that you'll ever consider in your life. For the next three weeks, I'm going to be preaching a different kind of sermon to you than you're used to here at Covenant Hope Church. Normally, we're working our way all the way through uh, entire books of the Bible, like the book of Genesis or the book of Acts, like we just finished. And we will take just separate portions of that book and we'll consider what's the main point of this particular passage for us. And then the goal when I'm preparing the sermon and preaching it to you is that the sermon... Its main point is the main point of the passage. 
And we call those expositional sermons. And that's normally what you will hear there. We think it's best to be preaching the whole Bible expositionally. But these sermons over the next three weeks will be topical. They're about a particular topic. Or we could even call them doctrinal sermons. Doctrines are set of truths or beliefs that we hold. And so these sermons are going to be focused on our doctrine of God. And even more specifically on the aspect of God that we see in the scriptures that is biblically rooted, which says that God is Trinity. The understanding that the one God is three. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So each week, I'm going to begin by explaining a little bit more about the Trinity. So the next two weeks, I'm going to be adding to our understanding of the Trinity. So we'll complete, we'll add to that as we go through over the next few weeks. And then midway through this sermon, we'll begin to consider God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. In this kind of sermon, we might focus on some specific passages, but really we're considering what the whole Bible says about God's existence as Trinity, or in this specific sermon, what God says about himself in the scripture when he says that he is Father. Doctrinal sermons draw on a field of theology called systematic theology. In, in other words, what the whole Bible says, says about any one topic. Before we get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. We praise you that you want to be known by us. We praise you that that is driven by your love. We pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself to us today, in this time. In Christ's name. Charles Spurgeon once began a sermon by saying this, the proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The Godhead is God. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God who we call Father. I know of nothing which can so comfort the soul, he goes on, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial, as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. But I'm confident that Spurgeon would agree that simply knowing about God isn't enough. The scripture tells us that there is a greater goal that follows knowing about God, and that is knowing God. Knowing God should be our goal. Having a personal relationship with the one true God is the highest goal that we can have in our lives. Jesus says this as he prays to God the Father in John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, 
whom you have sent. Knowing God is life. It's eternal life. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 say, This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or, his, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Christian friend, is knowing God the goal of your life? To know God personally, to be engaged with Him in a relationship, to experience abundant, eternal life simply because you know Him? What else could be more important? You're here in a church service where we sing about and we pray to and we preach about God. But it's up to you to do something more than just learn about God here. We sing and pray and teach about Him so that you can know Him rather than just know about Him. We present Him and it's up to you to engage with God, to relate to God. If we're going to know God, though, we have to begin with learning about God. We have to understand some basic truths about Him if we want to know God personally. So if I met you for the first time and I said to you, hey, do you know that elder of our church named Nissen Matthew? And you said, sure, I know him. He's that guy with blonde hair from Norway who plays the violin. Well, I, I would say to you, well, that's not the Nissen Matthew I know. I think we know two different Nissen Matthews. In the same way, if you think of God differently than he really is, then you don't know the true God. Instead, the God you think you know is really just a fiction. He, he's imaginary. No matter how truly you believe it, an imaginary God is no God at all. In fact, what we call an imaginary God is an idol. So it's important for us to think rightly about God. So where do we begin? Well, we could first consider creation. Creation tells us some things about God because God made creation. Romans 1 Verses 18 through 20 say this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There are things that creation can tell us about God that people can't reasonably deny. Notice I said reasonably. Paul is saying in this letter that he wrote to the Romans that if someone claims to be an atheist, someone who says, I don't think there is a God at all, 
that in fact the evidence that that atheist is claiming isn't there is actually all around them. It's in creation. Probably most of all when they look in the mirror. They're simply denying what God has made obvious about himself in creation. They're suppressing the truth. Creation can reveal to us that there is a God who is, let's say, all-powerful, that he's good, that he's creative. We can just look around the room and see that God is creative, right? We can even see in creation that God is loving and personal. We see that, for instance, when we just read about God creating in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But creation can only go so far in revealing God to us. In order to know enough about God so that we can begin to know Him, to enter into a relationship with Him, God has to introduce Himself to us. He has to speak to us more than through creation. And He has done that. He's done that, friends, in Scripture, in the Bible. God has spoken to us through His Holy Word. Just knowing that God has spoken to us through Scripture should remind us that God wants to know us. He didn't have to speak to us, but He has. Maybe you've had times when you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. This is a, a common phrase that people use. You feel like their prayers are getting nowhere. They feel all alone. Like they're not being heard. God feels far away. Remember. Remember that God has spoken to you in his word. He wants you to know him. And what he has said in scripture. Well, first of all, we go and we start in the Old Testament. And we see that God reveals to us that he is the one God. He is the only God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then as we read further through the Old Testament, we find that God is more complex than just saying He is one. In Genesis 1 and 2, for example, He speaks of Himself as an us. He said, let us create man in our own image. It's plural. In other places in the Old Testament, there's an angel of the Lord who appears to people who speaks as if he's God. He says, I saved you. I rescued you. I brought you out of Egypt, for example. And in addition to that, there is a separate spirit of the Lord that's mentioned, especially there in chapter 1 of Genesis. And by the time then we get to the New Testament, it becomes much clearer. The one God is in fact three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. God is Trinity, or triunity. Matthew 28, 18, and 19. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus refers to the name, he's really referring to the one God. You notice that it says here, not the names, Father, Son, and Spirit. It says the name. It's singular. This is him referring to the oneness of God, the unity of God. But the one God that we know, and we learn it from that very same verse, chapter 28, verse 19, is that the one God is revealed as being Father, Son, and Spirit. The one God is three persons. Now you can think of the Old Testament ways that God has revealed himself as a trinity as if they were like pencil sketches. But when we get to the New Testament, those pencil sketches turn into full color portraits. Full color portraits that tell us that God is trinity. Now when we say that God is trinity, we mean that he's three persons, but he is one divine essence or substance. One essence or substance. And so we can say that the Father is fully God. He's not a third of God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. They each share the same divine essence. Each is omnipotent or all-powerful. Each is omnipresent or present everywhere. Each is omniscient. They're all-knowing. And yet, each person of the Trinity is a different person than the other. They're not interchangeable. So the Father's not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. If you look in your bulletin on page 9, there's a diagram that combines kind of all of those statements that I just gave you, all those simple statements, all in one simple figure. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but is the one word we use to describe how God has revealed himself. He is Father, Son, and Spirit in a mutual relationship of love with one another. Now, there's lots of different analogies that people have tried to come up with to describe the Trinity. I'm sure you've heard of some of them. The Trinity, for example, people say is, is like an egg. An egg has a yolk, and then it also has an egg white, and it has a shell, and yet it's one egg. Or maybe they say the Trinity is like H2O, which can exist as steam or a solid or a liquid. But all of those analogies have come from the created world, and when the created world tries to describe, or when we try to look in the created world for analogies for the great God who is above all, then they fall short. And almost all those analogies lead to misunderstandings about the Trinity. And so I would encourage you, don't use those analogies. It's not best to pay attention to them. It's better to go to the source where we find the Trinitarian names of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we find those in Scripture. Believing in the Trinity isn't optional for Christians. It is not an option. 
You can't have a Christian, one Christian who believes in the Trinity and another Christian who says, I don't believe in the Trinity, but I'm a Christian. Now, historically, the Trinity is a necessity. Through the centuries, Christians have come up with summaries, short summaries of Christian theology based on the Bible, and we call those creeds. We have one of those creeds in your bulletin. If you would turn with me in your bulletin to page 8. Turn with me to page 8. Now this is not going to be on the screen behind me. This is the Nicene Creed. It was written in 381 AD, 381 years after Christ's death. We're going to read the Nicene Creed to each other right now. We're going to read it out loud. So let's read together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made a man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose on the third day according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who receives from the Father and the Son, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and Son, and who spoke through the prophets. And we believe that there is one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We confess one baptism for the remission of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The Nicene Creed guides us into a Trinitarian understanding of God. And in addition to that, there were other creeds that were written by church theologians down through the ages. Another one is called the Athanasian Creed. It was written in the 5th or 6th century, and it begins like this. Listen. Whoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. And when I say, and when they say the Catholic faith, they mean the universal faith, not the Roman Catholic faith. Which faith except every do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. You see, this creed is stating that an understanding of God and a faith in God as the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit is necessary to have saving faith. Now when we begin to explore what the Bible says 
God the Father has done through God the Son in God the Spirit. We find that if someone rejects the Trinity, then all the other truths that we believe about God begin to crumble. The truth of the Trinity is central to what it means to hold Christian beliefs and to live as a Christian. So, for example, other sects, other religions can hold partial truths that we hold to, even about Jesus or about God, and yet not be Christians. So, for example, Mormons believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Where Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is divine. And most other cults hold to some belief, for example, if they're an offshoot of Christianity, about Christ himself. But all of those religions and cults ultimately distort the Trinity. In fact, if you want to look at where those religions go wrong, look to the Trinity. Islam, for example, rejects the Trinity. The Quran specifically argues against the existence of God as a triunity or a triune God. And so in Surah 4, Ayat 171, it says this, Say not Trinity, desist. It will be better for you, for God is one God. Glory be to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. Islam rejects the Trinity. We believe that God is the one God, that there are no other gods but Him, but He has revealed Himself to be Father, Son, and Spirit. And when we say each person of the Trinity has the same essence, we mean that they share the same divine power, the same divine wisdom, the same divine goodness, the same divine glory, even. The only differences between the Father, Son, and the Spirit are defined by what theologians call their relationships of origin. How they are related to one another in Scripture. So, for example, we see that Scripture reveals that the Father begets the Son. Begets the Son. Now, we can use that word when a baby is born. We can say a baby is begotten. Or a father has begotten a child, let's say. John 1.14 says this about the Son, who is called the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And where it says only Son, there are some translations would use the term only begotten Son. But we have to be clear here. People can beget other people. In fact, I have begotten four human beings. They all have a birthday. By the way, Hannah's is in two weeks. But the scriptures argue that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. Jesus himself says in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's saying he existed before he was born to the Virgin Mary. And like we recited in the Nicene Creed, we believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Of course, he's saying in the creed there that he's of the same essence, 
begotten, not made. So there was not some prior time that Jesus didn't exist. Being of one substance with the Father, it finishes. The relationship between the Spirit and the Father and the Son is what differentiates them. Together, then, when we consider the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and His relationship, the Holy Spirit's relationship to the first two, is that the Father and the Son send or breathe out the Spirit. There's a fancy theological word for that. It's spirates. Now, we know at least enough about the Trinity now, this far, to begin speaking specifically about God the Father. One of the most foundational things that the Bible reveals to us about God is that He is not an impersonal force in the universe. He's not what you hear about in Star Wars movies. Some of you may have read books or seen the Lord of the Rings movies, and in that story there is a powerful villain named Sauron. He knows and he sees much of what his enemies are doing before they do it even, and he's represented by a giant burning eye in the sky. That's not what God is like. The scriptures portray God as Father. In the Old Testament, we see in the book of Exodus, in fact, in chapter 422, God calls the nation of Israel, my firstborn son, because God is their father. The prophet Isaiah says of God in chapter 63, verse 16, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. A popular Old Testament name among the Israelites was Abijah, which means the Lord is my Father. And then it is Jesus, of course, who appears in the pages of the New Testament. And he makes the identity of God even more clear. He fills out that full-color portrait of God. He repeatedly refers to God as Father. He teaches his disciples to pray, and he says to them, pray this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Many of Jesus' parables depict God as Father, of course, just like the parable of the prodigal son, which Faber read for us earlier in the service. The parable of the prodigal son reveals a father so overwhelmed with love for his son that he embarrasses himself by running to meet his beloved son who was lost but now is found. So one of the most important characteristics of God the Father is His love. God is love. And we most associate that with God the Father, perhaps first and foremost. The Apostle John wrote in his epistle, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 9. Turn there with me in your Bibles if you have a Bible. I haven't asked you to turn in your Bible, but this is as good a time as any. 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. It's near the end of the New Testament. It's very short. 1 John chapter 4. And look with me at verses 7 through 9. 
beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that He might, we might live through Him. Did you catch what it said in that last verse 9? The way that God the Father shows His love is by sending His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That's how we know that God is love. Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says, The God who is love is the Father who sends His Son. To be the Father, then, means to love, to give out life, to beget the Son before anything else. For all eternity, this God was loving, giving life to, and delighting in the Son. A God who is radically one could not be defined as loving. Before creation, for sure. Because love requires an object. Love requires someone to be loved, for it to be love. And so, if there is a religion who claims that God is radically one, not Trinity, then we could say there is no love in that God. But the God who is Trinity has eternally been defined by love. The mutual love between the Father and the Son, first and foremost. God is Father then, first and foremost, not because He's our Father, that came after creation, but he was and his father first because he is the father of the son, the only begotten son. So John 17, 24, Jesus prays and he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The father was loving the son from eternity past. At no beginning. God the Father is love, but disobedience to God is a rejection of God the Father's love for us, his creatures. When we sin, and we were all born in sin, we reject God's fatherhood of us. And so God's design for all people is that he be their loving Father, and yet we all enter this world with the sinful bent to reject God's fatherhood in our lives, just like the prodigal son. We're all like him. We don't want the love of the father, we want the inheritance. Rejecting his fatherhood cuts us off from his personal love for us. It cuts us off from life because he's the source of life. It results in spiritual death and eventually physical death and ultimately eternal death. And at that point, we can see that we have no right to call God our Father then from the very beginning of our lives. If you're not a Christian, that is your situation. That is your spiritual circumstance. You have no right to call God Father. 
It might, might sound harsh to you. It might sound exclusive to you. But, but this is the bad news that the Bible reveals about us. I mean, those of us who are Christians, we know what it's like to be cut off from God the Father. There was a time for each one of us when we could not call him our Father, because that's who we once were. But God did something that enabled us to call him our Father. His love for the Son overflowed in him, sending his Son into the world. And that eternal and divine Son, he took on human nature. He became a man, and so he was the God-man. Fully God and fully man, and he died on the cross in our place because we deserve the punishment of death. But he was raised to new life because God the Father was pleased with him. John 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become. Calling on God as Father is not a birthright. It's not automatically something that you have access to when you're born. It's something that only the eternally begotten Son can bestow upon you. But he gives it freely. He gives it joyfully. He gives that right automatically to anyone who repents and believes in his name. We become his brothers and sisters, and we share in his sonship and all that he gets from the Father. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is that you can come into that family. You can call him Father because of what Christ has done. Why would you reject the fatherhood of God if it's freely offered to you? I can't for the life of me figure that out. You can receive it. You can receive it now. Trust in Him. And you, brothers and sisters in Christ, oh, you can call Him Father. I hope you do every single day. You must call him Father. You have access to this divine love given by God the Father. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. He's writing regarding this love of the Father that is overflowing and spilling out into the world. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Did you hear all the members of the Trinity mentioned in those verses? 
God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. John Stott says about the Father's love here in this passage, it's broad enough to encompass all mankind, it's long enough to last for eternity, it's deep enough to reach to the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. Brothers and sisters, why would we not spend as many waking moments as we can exploring and trying to get lost in this limitless love of God, the Father? If you ever wondered how big, how wide, deep, high it is, oh, go walk out to the beach and look and see if you can see where the Arabian Gulf ends. your view, it doesn't. Oh, wake up. Wake up, brothers and sisters. Wake up and pursue knowing more and more and more of the love of God the Father. He wants to fill you with that love. Not just know about it, but be filled with it. To His praise and glory. The only reason the love of God doesn't completely capture our imagination and cause us to run after him with every fiber of our strength and being is what remains of indwelling sin. Dulls our senses. It distracts us with trinkets and worthless treasures in this world. This love of the Father that has eternally flooded the community of the three divine persons has overflowed to us through the redeeming work of the Trinity. And it's what we desire to have flooded into our community with one another in this church. Paul prays that they might have strength to comprehend with all the saints the love of God. You see, experiencing and demonstrating God the Father's love is a community project. It is a church project. Oh, brothers and sisters, I remember when we were on that campus that that drama dramatists would de depict all those different distorted views of God, he would complete that presentation by speaking as if he were the Son. And he would talk about the Father, the Father's love for him, and his desire to make available the Father's love to every single person who would receive him. It's powerful. It was powerful. It's powerful because it's true. We need God most of all. We need to know who He is, what He's like, we need to know about Him, and we need to know Him. One theologian says this, the true food for which the human soul hungers, the true drink for which the human soul thirsts, is not merely something that God gives, it is something that God himself is. Our souls long for the living God. He is the bread of life, the soul's true food, the soul's true drink, the one and simple God, the final cause of all creatures, is himself the soul's reward.
pray you know him.